The prophet John foretells the end of the world which will shortly come to pass. We'll talk about the quickest way to get the best insurance. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining us again for Gospel Doctrine, your go-to Come Follow Me podcast. And for those of you who enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please leave us a five-star review. And I've been doing some studies about how podcasts grow in listeners, and it's actually more word of mouth, so tell someone about it. Speaking of that, I'd like to give a shout out to Lori, who in her hairstylish chair told Debbie and ended up telling my friend Bella. And so, Lori, this is your shout-out. Thank you for spreading the word. The word got back to me in this case, and uh, we sure appreciate it. So, this week's lesson is on Revelation. Next week, we have coming up our special episode where I answer your questions from the Scriptures. They can be about any topic you like, and so send those questions in. You've just got a few more days. And uh, the email address is gt at gospeltoctrine.com. So this week's lesson is Revelation, the first first half of the book of Revelation, uh, which is not plural, by the way. It's Revelation singular, and the title is Glory and Power Be Unto the Lamb Forever. This is what is called Jewish apocalyptic literature. Now, the book of Revelation sort of has a reputation, you might say, or at least I think you might have a reaction to it, you might think that it's uh, difficult to understand, and it can be. It, it, if you just dive right in without any sort of preparation, it can be very difficult to understand, and you can get a little bit lost. So before we go, you might remember a few weeks ago, we packed our bags before wading right in. And in this case, we're going we're gonna to pack our bags from the Old Testament, because John, we, and I, I mentioned the prophet John in the intro, John is very much a product of a, a culture that believes that is steeped, that is absolutely drenched in the Old Testament. And therefore, uh, if, we, if I can give you a little bit of exposure to the kinds of things that his audience would have been thinking as they were reading, then you might understand that this actually wasn't quite as difficult for them to understand as it was for us. So first of all, what is an apocalypse? An apocalypse means a revelation. So that, that apocalypse is the title in, in many languages for this book, but it's a revelation in the sense of an uncovering. So when we say revelation in the church today, what we mean is God has shown me something. And while that's definitely what's happening in the book of Revelation, basically what John meant by titling his, his uh, work this way was that he was going to uncover something that the Lord wanted to reveal. And anyway, I guess there's, a, there's only a subtle difference between the way he uses the word revelation and the way we would use it. But it's an important difference. And we'll go a little bit into what he means by apocalypse and how he symbolizes what the apocalypse is, the revealing. What is the revealing as we get later into the lesson? So first thing, who is the prophet John? Why did I say the prophet John and not the apostle John? That's because we don't know 100% who the author of Revelation is. My personal belief is that it is John the Beloved, the disciple of Jesus. And also, 
my intuition, my intuitive sense is that the book of Revelation is the first thing he did. Now, one of the scholarly arguments for why John the Beloved is not the author of the book of Revelation is that the, the style of Greek doesn't matter. The level of refinement in the language, the level of education that you can tell from how the books are written is different. In the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, those two match and they're at a higher level than Revelation. And I mean, it, there seems to me to be a pretty simple explanation, and it comes in a word that you probably won't have heard of. The word is amanuensis, which, is, which simply is a fancy word for scribe. And I think that John could have written this book down himself, uh, originally in Hebrew, and, or he was using a, a scribe that was somebody closer to the original 12 apostles, who, for whom Greek was possibly not a first language. And then later on, either he learned Greek more or he got a better amanuensis and was able to dictate to someone who would put it down in an educated sense. So John would start with the book of Revelation and then uh, go from there to the, to the epistles of John and then finally cap his life's work with the gospel of John. That's my per- personal intuitive sense for the order that it took. And I do believe they, the three had the same author. And that is not a universal viewpoint. And there are many people who are much smarter than me who, who would disagree, but nevertheless, that's what I think. And you may have learned at some point in your religious education, you may have learned that John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for the end of, what, of his life or what they thought was his life. Now, the, the evidence for this is actually here in this book. And there is some, we can we can get a little bit of sense from the text that he's been exiled there, but what John says is, I was on the Isle of Patmos, and I was in the Spirit, and he gives a little bit of an indication that he was there unwillingly, but maybe not. Maybe he was just, it was among his travels. That was That's a Greek island. And John writes, the, the book of Revelation is written to seven congregations that are in Asia Minor, and therefore we know he's been a missionary, much as Peter has, much as Paul has, and in much the same locations. And uh, the, the beginning of this book, well, not the very, very beginning, but close to the beginning of this book is what we call a throne theophany, which means a vision of God in his glory surrounded by those who are worshiping him. And John has one of those too. So that's why I call him the prophet John, because regardless of who the author is, which John it is, he has a prophetic experience very similar to what we find in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over some of these throne theophanies that we find in the Old Testament and we're going to understand that the prophet John is fitting himself, or, or as many scholars call him, to avoid controversy, they call him John of Patmos. Because regardless of which John it is, we, we know that whoever wrote this is John of Patmos. So the, the prophet John, or John of Patmos, he's fitting himself in, uh, in the context of, the, of, a, of an ancient Hebrew prophet, exactly like the prophets from the Old Testament. So let's go over what some of these visions looked like. The most archetypal, I would say, would be Isaiah. Now, that's found in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is not necessarily in chronological order. In fact, none of the books of the Old Testament prophets and, uh, tellingly, the book of Revelation are in chronological order. They sort of follow a patchwork of the different ways in which God has spoken through this prophet. And sometimes the prophet is giving the revelation, like sometimes we read about the revelations in chronological order in which they were given to the prophet, but God is revealing first about the past, then about the future, then about the present. Or sometimes the books themselves are not 
chronological according to the prophets' lives, and lives, and then, and then uh, there's there are no rules, right? That the time frame could just skip around, and that seems to be the case here, and and that's one of the problems is if we try to interpret the Book of Revelation in chronological order, which many many people have, and they're you know biblical scientists, you might call them, who have tried to calculate. They use Revelation and they use Daniel as a mathematical set of data, and they try to calculate the date of the second coming. And that's a fool's errand, in my opinion. This isn't meant to be a set of data that, from which you can draw calculations. It's, and it's not chronological. That's the main reason. So don't try to necessarily take this, all these things as being chronological. Uh, sometimes John will describe an event that's a future for him and future for us, and then he'll describe it again rather than describe a succeeding event. And it's hard to tell when he's doing which. And so you have to, you have to be, be a little merciful with, with yourself and understand basically that what we're meant to get is a sense of what things are going to be like uh, preceding the second coming and not necessarily what order events are going to take. So let's begin with Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah finds himself, either he's in a dream or he's in a vision, but he finds himself in the holy space in the temple and the veil has been pushed aside so normally there's a double veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies and he's in the holy place the veil has been pushed aside and god is on his throne which is called the mercy seat it's a it's an an imaginary place suspended above the wings of the cherubim on the ark of the covenant and he sees god seated on his throne and he's surrounded by what isaiah calls seraphim which are beings that do not resemble humans and they're, they're almost indescribable. But they have six weeks. Two cover their feet, two cover their eyes, and two fly. And Joseph Smith has weighed in on what this is, but wings basically denote the power to move about to accomplish goals. And so these are symbolic. The, the, the ways in which these Old Testament prophets describe their visions are not meant to be a literal description. Uh, it's not the same way that you or I might describe, you know, let's say that a... Uh, a flying saucer arrived and you wanted to describe it so that uh, exobiologists could know what kind of vehicle they arrived in, you would give a detailed description. But somebody from a more primitive culture might say, you know, a giant wheel was suspended in the sky. And that's a little bit like what the prophets describe in the Old Testament. They don't have any context for what they're saying, and so they use the best context they can. And it may be that they had literal wings, and it may be that that was as close as they could get to describing what they were seeing. In any case, Isaiah sees God surrounded by these heavenly beings, and one of them takes a, a there's a, a censer or a, a burning, a place where coals burn, incense burns, in the holy place of the temple, and one of them takes a coal from there and purifies Isaiah's mouth, and he's given a mission to go forth and preach. So the reaction of Isaiah is, I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. What am I doing here? I, I'm not, even if he was a priest, which he, pro- he may not have been, um, I'm not a priest or I'm not ceremonially pure to be inside the temple, and so therefore I must be destroyed. And instead of his impurity infecting the place he's in, God extends his purity and purifies Isaiah. So that's, that's the theophany, the throne theophany of Isaiah, very archetypal. In Jeremiah, on the other hand, He doesn't describe what he sees, but basically what he hears. And he says, you know, I heard the voice of God saying to me, before I knew thee, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
and I called thee to spread my word. But again, Jeremiah has the, this is in Jeremiah chapter 1, he has the reaction, who am I? I can't speak for thee. I am nobody. And God replies to Jeremiah, I have made thee an iron pillar. You know, you are a, a support for the house of God. So the prophet, again, he feels inadequate. He feels like he's not worthy to be where he is. And then God says, I will sanctify you. I will qualify you for your calling. Now, a very important vision is that of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is in exile. So when Ezekiel has his throne theophany, he is uh, near the, ri- the river, I think it's Kebar, which is uh, outside of Babylon, and he's looking away toward Jerusalem, as all the Jews do. So Ezekiel is doubtless one of the survivors of the f- one of the first exiles. Babylon actually conquered Jerusalem three times. So either the first or second time, Ezekiel was carried away. So he's looking back towards Jerusalem and thinking, there are still Jews living there. They're living in our land. They're worshiping in our temple, and we have to be here. And as he looks across this river, he sees the vision of the throne of God, but it's carried by four extraordinary beings. And the way he describes you'd have to read Ezekiel chapter 1. I, I don't want to read it. It would take too long. But their faces are constantly facing every direction. So no matter which direction they move, they're always facing in that direction. And the wheels that carry the the chariot of God or the throne of God, uh, they're always turning in whatever direction it wants to move. And he keeps trying to make this point. And as you read it, you kind of think, what what is he describing? I have no way of visualizing what he's actually describing. And this is a common reaction to Ezekiel chapter 1. And then there's this glorious being on top, but we don't get an exact description of that being either, which is the glory of God. And he even says the the image of the likeness of the glory of God. So he doesn't say, I see the the glory of God. He says, I see two steps removed from it. And the point of all of this is that Ezekiel is conveying the idea that words are simply inadequate to describe what he's experiencing. There's no way for him to do it justice. And so he does his, he does the best he can. And that should tell us a little bit more about what the prophets feel when they say, I'm not adequate to speak for thee. They're, the truth is they're not. It's not that God qualifies them. It's that nobody is adequate because what they have to do is they have to take an experience that is utterly transcendent and then they have to put it into words. No one could possibly be equal to that task. And God is saying, that's fine. You, that's not the actual task that I need from you. What I need from you is to be a mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. And uh, as a side note of getting back on track, perhaps, actually, uh, John, the prophet John, describes Revelation as a prophecy. And when we hear the word prophecy, we often think that it's a foretelling. But in Old Testament context, what a prophecy meant was that the The word was coming from God through a prophet. So in other words, a prophecy is simply the word of the Lord revealed through his mouthpiece. Another thing about the book of Revelation is that if you think about the book of Mormon, uh, and if you you spend a long time as a member of the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the book of Mormon, we read often, was written for our day. Mormon and Moroni both say, my voice will come unto you as the dust. I speak to you as someone speaking from the dust. And therefore, we know that this book was abridged and it was written, parts of it were written and parts of it were abridged specifically for us. And that's why it makes so much sense. That's why it's easier to read than the ancient scriptures. And 
By extension, I think we make the mistake of thinking that the book of Revelation was also written for our day because it talks about events that will happen possibly in our day. But that's simply not the case. The book of Revelation, as it says, was written for the seven churches of Asia, and it was written for people in the time of the prophet John, which is first century Christianity. And that's as simply as I can make it, that is the audience for the book of Revelation. Now, it's very profitable for us to read. And it's very important for us to read and important for us to understand. But in order to, the reason I make this point is not that we shouldn't read it and not that it's not any good to us, but that in order to understand it, we have to put ourselves in the position of another culture, another language, another people, another place. And if we can do that, then we can get the profit from it. But if we make the mistake of thinking that this is like the Book of Mormon, it was written exactly for us, it was intended for us and not the people at the time of the writer, then we won't understand it in the way that it was intended for them. Now, if we hear the words of the book of Revelation as it was intended for them, then we'll get the, the maximum amount of benefit for us. And then we can take the lessons that they would get and we can apply them in our lives as appropriate. And that's really the key. So we've talked about Isaiah. We've talked about Jeremiah. We've talked a little bit about Ezekiel. We'll go back to it. One more Old Testament prophet, and there are others. Well, two more, I guess. Um, we won't mention much about Zechariah's theophany, but Zechariah was another prophet that is referred to in context or by context a few times in the book of Revelation. But finally, we'll talk about Daniel. Now, Daniel had some uh, visions before he had his throne theophany, but uh, we've made a lot in our study of the New Testament. We've made a lot out of understanding the chapter of Daniel where he has this throne theophany, Daniel chapter 7. And this is where he sees, first thing he sees is four evil beasts destroying humanity. And then he sees what he calls the ancient of days descending on a throne and, and fire issues out from the throne. And then the son of man stands beside the throne and power is given to him to judge the, the children of the, of the world, the people of earth. And so that's the throne theophany of Daniel chapter 7. And you may remember that four beasts emerge out of the sea. And it, it explains explicitly what those mean. They represent the wicked kingdoms of the world. And the horns on one of the beasts, they represent kings, first seven horns, and then one of the horns is supplanted by three, so there's a total of ten. So the numbers seven and ten are important. And uh, as I said, the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days are both part of this vision. And these are, these are ideas that come into play in the book of Revelation. Now, another chapter in Daniel that's important. Daniel, later in his life, uh, in fact, much later in his life, so Daniel and Jer uh, sorry Ezekiel are both prophets of the exile. Uh, and Ezekiel is probably a little bit older. Ezekiel was the, the man who likely would have been high priest had he remained in Jerusalem. And he is at least 40 years old when he begins his, his writing. Whereas Daniel, if you remember, uh, at the early, in the early years of the exile, Daniel is a young man. So he may have known Ezekiel, but he would have been a young man to, Dan to Ezekiel's old man. Then Daniel grew up, so Jeremiah prophesied. Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah were, were contemporaries, by the way, and they may have even read each other's writings, uh, but they likely did not meet after the exile. So in any case, uh, Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last 70 years. And Daniel had heard about this. So later in Daniel's life, he's an old man. He's been uh, living in Babylon for 70 years. And he says, 
Lord, one day he arrives before God and he says, Lord, it's been 70 years. You promised to take us back to our land. And there's this, I won't go into it much because we're not studying Daniel, but there's this wonderful moment where this prayer where he repents as if he's Israel. He takes, uh, in a very Christ-like way, he takes upon himself the, the sins of his entire nation and prays as if he's begging for forgiveness for himself and says, please forgive us, reintroduce us into our land. Now, this does happen. Uh, not too much later, the Jews are given permission to return to their land to build their, rebuild their temple. But that's not exactly the, the message that Daniel gets at this point. An angel appears to Daniel and says, okay, 70 years is just the beginning. The truth is, I'm not really going to release you from exile in the way that you've been expecting just yet. And in fact, so 70 years is 7 times 10 years. It's a week of decades. And now a week is seven days, and day in Hebrew is simply a period of time. You may have heard that interpretation about the creation of the world. God didn't create the world in seven days of 24 hours, but in seven days, seven creative periods. And that's what, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, that's what they mean by weeks. So seven weeks or I'm sorry, 10 weeks is uh, 70 years, interestingly enough. So it's seven periods of time of whatever length they are. And this, this angel appears to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and says, 70 weeks is actually how long it's going to take. So in other words, 490 years, seven, 70 times 7 years. Uh, and then you will, you will have the redemption that you seek. Now, th- it, in, this is an interesting... Uh, prophecy, because if you do the math, that basically means that this prophecy will be fulfilled sometime maybe 40 BC. And that's, it's, it's off a little bit, in other words, from the birth of Christ. So there are a lot of people who've tried to reconcile that the vision in Daniel chapter 9 is actually talking about Jesus Christ. But because it doesn't line up exactly, there's a, you know, there's room for interpretation there. My point is that seven is an important number, and seven is everywhere in the book of Revelation. There, uh, and, and the reason that this would have made sense to John the prophet's readers is because of Daniel chapter 9, because it was made such a big deal out of. And that the reason that seven is important in Daniel chapter 9 is because of the creation of the world. So God created the world in seven days, and therefore the seventh day is, is dedicated to God and seven means God. Seven means perfection. God completed his work in seven. So when we read the word perfect throughout the scriptures, it means something that's whole and complete. It has, its purpose has been realized. It has had its full seven days of creation, and God has rested at the end of them. Now, the, the number six, uh, in, in, on the sixth day, God created man. And so six is something that's incomplete, so those two numbers are important, but seven is the most important. You'll see, I'll, I'll make a partial list of the sevens that appear, but you might find some other ones because I'd have to go through it several times to make sure I got them all. But there are many examples of things that appear in groups of seven in the book of Revelation. So that's, that's our bags are packed now. We can begin to read. Uh, so in part one of the book of Revelation, John begins by giving a little bit of an introduction. Chapter 1 is uh, him saying what, what he's about to do. And he, he says, I had a dream or I had a vision, and I heard a voice behind me, and I turned around, 
and then I see this figure. And the uh, in verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what thou seest right in a book. Anyway, I won't figure that entire, I won't read that entire verse, but then uh, he turns around. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is the first example of something that John hears and then sees. He hears something and then he sees something different. That's significant. Uh, so he sees seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is an image from the book of Zechariah. Uh, and you, unfortunately, you won't, you won't see a lot of these cross-references in our uh, footnotes, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly why. But in Zechariah chapter 4, you can see the example of where uh, Zechariah has shown seven candlesticks, and he asks what they are. Uh, in the King James Version, the, and in, in most versions, uh, admittedly, um, Zechariah chapter 4 is not in logical order. So you read where it, there are seven candlesticks, and he asks God, what do these candlesticks mean? In verse 5, and then it's not later until verse 10 that he actually learns what they mean. They mean the seven eyes of God that are sent forth on the whole earth. <laughs> and interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 5, God sends seven of his eyes across the whole earth and to, to watch over all living beings. So this is very clearly, these seven candlesticks, they very clearly come from Zechariah chapter 4. And John doesn't explain what he means when he says these seven candlesticks. He's expecting his audience to have read the Hebrew scriptures, and when they're not familiar with exactly what things mean, he wants them to go study the scriptures and to get those lessons, to reinforce those lessons, uh, to feel the spirit that they felt from those scriptures the first time through. He wants to send them back to the scriptures by writing this revelation, by writing his epistle. This is actually an epistle. It, it, the fact that it's a circular epistle, it's supposed to go to several different recipients, make, it no less makes it an epistle. And that's the audience of Revelation, not us. So if we can put ourselves in the position of these churches, then uh, we can understand it a little better. He wants them to read their Old Testament and know these prophets. He wants them to pack their bags before they begin reading. And so it, hopefully there would be someone in their congregation which can say, this really reminds me of the seven candlesticks that I read about in Zechariah chapter 4, so let's all go check that out. So anyway, later on we get a, an explicit description of what these candlesticks mean. He calls the seven stars that, that showed up in the mouth of this being, oh, I didn't talk about the being, but I'll talk about that in a second, the seven stars uh, and seven candlesticks. So the candlesticks are the churches, these congregations that are spread throughout Asia Minor, what is Turkey today. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, Joseph Smith, in his translation, said the seven servants. Angels could mean messenger in Greek. In fact, that is what it meant. Uh, the fact that it often meant a heavenly messenger doesn't mean that's necessarily its meaning. So it seems to be that there are seven uh, church leaders that are high up. This is supported... So that's the seven stars, and then the, the seven candlesticks are the, the congregations themselves. And there's a second meaning by connection through Zechariah that there are also these seven eyes of God that go throughout the world. Uh, this idea is reinforced, these seven, uh, these seven stars being the leaders of the congregations. That is reinforced by Doctrine and Covenants 
section 77. You'll want to read that entire section. It's not too long. It's a question and answer session where those who were studying with the Prophet Joseph Smith asked him, what, are, what is the meaning of these passages in the book of Revelation? They were studying Revelation that day, and Joseph Smith simply answered them. Now, we won't spend a ton of time on his answers uh, other than to say, I want you to read that entire section. Um, and specifically about this part, he says that the in a, in a couple of chapters, we're going to read about John arriving before the throne of God. He has his own throne theophany. And when he does, there are four and twenty elders sitting before the throne of God. And what Joseph Smith said these elders are is they are departed or deceased former leaders of these congregations or people that were prominent in these congregations. So they're leaders, they're church leaders who passed on and are now serving God on the other side of the veil. And so they're in the attitude of continually worshiping God. Uh, so that, uh, Joseph Smith gives a number of interpretations of what these images are in the first half, specifically the first half of today's lesson in the book of Revelation. So uh, a very useful, obviously, very useful section for us to read from modern Revelation. But let's go into some of, uh, we're still in Revelation chapter 1, let's go into some of the descriptions that God, uh, or I'm sorry, that John gives of his vision of God here in uh, when he sees the golden candlestick. So first he hears a voice saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, and when he turns, he sees seven golden candlesticks. And it's only later that he says, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now this is language very similar to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw the Ancient of Days on his throne, and then one like unto the Son of Man came, right? And what that means is somebody who looked like us. One like unto the Son of Man means a son of Adam, somebody who looks like a human being. He's in the form of a human being. He has a head, he has two arms and two legs, etc. Okay, so that's what, he, that's what one like unto the Son of Man means. Just because Jesus called himself the Son of Man, that doesn't mean that what John is saying here is that it's somebody who looked like Jesus, it's simply a person. Okay, enough about that. But in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. He's describing his clothing much like Joseph Smith described the clothing of Moroni uh, from Joseph Smith history. You might, you might reference that if you're interested. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, his feet fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So you can tell from this, if you, if you paused the podcast and if you read Ezekiel chapter 1 when I was talking about it, you can tell that he's, John the prophet here is having a similar problem that Ezekiel had, which is he's experienced something that is simply too transcendent for words. It is impossible to describe. He's having a vision of the glory of God. And what he's giving us is an image of the likeness of the glory of God. We are at least two steps removed from what John the prophet himself actually experienced. But he's seeing Jesus Christ telling him, I have a message for the church congregations over which you, John, have stewardship. And here is the message. But first, I want you to know who I am. This is John's calling as a prophet, and it's likely because he has finally ascended to the top of the seniority of the apostles. Maybe not. This, that's my personal interpretation. Because, and, and also this, uh, this is my own interpretation as well, but I, I think it's an interesting thought. 
the Old Testament prophets, when they had a throne theophany, it was often because they were called to preside over uh, a group of a congregation of a people that were re- in rebellion. He throne theophanies generally precede a ministry in which the the prophet will be rejected continuously. Okay, a ministry over a rebellious people. So when a prophet is called in this way, you can almost expect that that they're going to have a very difficult ministry, and therefore they need something so glorious to begin it to carry them through. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's just an intuition that I had thinking about this. So it may be that it's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the great apostasy. And John has a very important mission to carry out. And that mission, by the way, is uh, described in detail in Doctrine and Covenants section 77. At one point, uh, as we'll read, The prophet John is given a little book. So verse 14 of Doctrine and Covenants 77. What are we to understand by the little book which was eaten by John as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation, the end of today's lesson? Answer, we are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias, who as it is written must come and restore all things. Now to understand who Elias is, uh, that's beyond the scope of today's lesson but it's the, the energy of a forerunner. Uh, so one incarnation of Elias was John the Baptist. There are others who have fulfilled the role or the spirit of Elias. And what Joseph Smith is saying is that the prophet John here is also being called as an Elias, somebody who would be a forerunner. And he has been called, he has been given a mission. And his mission is to prepare the world, in my opinion, for the great apostasy, because that historically is, we know, is what we know happened. So he's on the Isle of Patmos, but he won't be there forever. Um, And he's going to have to travel throughout the world. It may be that he was given that mission in preparation for his translation. Uh, We just, we don't know exactly what the mission was, but to gather the 12 tribes. And maybe that mission is still ongoing. Anyway, that's from DNC 77. So uh, back to Revelation. Now we're in chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2 and 3 are specific messages to each of these individual congregations in Asia Minor. And rather than go through them one by one, they're important, but there's just too much in this in the chapters for today for us to read a lot of it. So I'll give a little example, and then we'll bas- I'll basically leave the rest for you to read. But uh, So unto the ch- angel of the church of Ephesus. Here's further support for the idea of Joseph Smith's idea that the, these angels, these seven stars, actually are the leaders or the servants of the church, of the seven churches, um, because John is actually writing to them. If they were angels from God, then he wouldn't need to write to them, obviously. So it's probably the church leaders of these congregations. Unto the, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh In the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. If you remember, Paul wrote to Ephesus and he wrote to many congregations in Greece, but also in Asia Minor. And he said, uh, you know, these other apostles are the super apostles as it's rendered in some translations. You know, these men who are more, they're more impressive than I am, more impressive than perhaps Peter or John or anyone else who's visited you. Uh, You know that you should reject them. And here God is saying, 
or through John, he's saying, I know that you've tried these people who call themselves apostles and aren't. You've tried them and found them to be liars. Good work. However, in verse 3, uh, or in verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. So um, because we've already studied the epistles of Paul, we, we have a little bit of context for this. Remember that uh, Paul chided them as well for not sticking to the faith that they'd received and getting caught up in things like holidays and, um, in other words, this, this conflict between the, those of the circumcision and those not of the circumcision, they'd forgotten the simple truths of the gospel, which I believe is what God is referring to when he says, you've forgotten your first love. These simple truths of the gospel, the charity, the Holy Spirit especially, with which I blessed all people uh, on the day of Pentecosts. So this is, this is very much in line with what Paul wrote to the, to the, book, uh, sorry, to the church of Ephesus. And then comes this interesting, in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 2, comes this interesting phrase that's repeated over and over again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so Jesus also used this turn of phrase quite frequently. When he, used a, uh, when he taught a particular principle or when he used a parable, he would say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And that is, if, if we were to render that in today's languages, basically it would be, do you have ears? Are you listening? In other words, what I just said is so simple that you don't have a single excuse not to hear and understand what I just said. And you have nothing more important to be doing with your ears than to be listening to what I'm saying. So that's kind of what John is saying. That's what Jesus was saying when they're saying that phrase. They're saying, uh, you think your ears are for just listening to each other speak or listening to all the unimportant things that happen. If you have ears to hear, you better listen to this. Okay, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then it's generally followed in, uh, here in Revelation by something about overcoming. Now, a word about overcoming. This is military language. And that's important because there is so much military imagery that is used to refer to Jesus Christ. He is built up. That, this is why the expectations of the Messiah were so wildly inaccurate. And it's, to some extent, it's intentional in the, on the part of the scriptures. The Jews, uh, we can only assume, were meant to think on some level at least, or were meant to have to work a little harder to get beyond the military imagery so that then they could understand that military imagery is as close as we can get to how hard God is battling for us against the forces of evil. So that's one of the reasons. But again, it's continued here that to him who overcometh, right? And what that means is to him who conquereth, to, win, to, to him who is victorious in battle. So when you, when you read overcome, you think to him who wins the fight, all right? That's what, that's, that's what this word means literally. All right, so he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I could read all seven of these different uh, words to each of the churches, and then I could read the promises that come at the end. At the end of each of these things is first, first what God says is, here's what you're doing right. Then he says, here's what you're doing wrong. And then he says, to him that overcometh, here are the blessings. I'm just going to read some of the blessings that he gives. So chapters 2 and 3 are these, uh, this circular epistle. 
John's writing it one time and then sending it to everyone rather than writing seven, seven individual epistles. And I think that's so that they can each see the mistakes that each other is making and avoid them. And then also see all of the blessings that could come. Let's talk about the blessings that uh, are promised in each of these seven visions. So I will give to eat of the tree of life. I will give a crown of life. I will give to eat of the hidden manna. We'll talk about that in, in just a bit. I will give a white stone with a new name. I will give, uh, and that's interesting because uh, uh, there are a lot of Mormon, uh, I shouldn't say Mormon, there are a lot of Latter-day Saint interpretations of what that white stone is and what the new name is. Uh, and it has to do with the sea of glass that John sees in a couple of chapters. He sees, when he sees God on his throne, before him is a sea of glass. And what jo- what Joseph Smith says in DNC 77 is the sea of glass is earth in its perfected state. And this white stone is a little piece of that perfected earth that each of us will get, that each person who overcomes, who wins the fight, will get from God that has a new name inscribed in it. And that new name has a lot to do with our covenant with Jesus Christ. So something about that new name ties us to Christ. And this stone ties us to the earth or Christ's uh, heaven, you might say. Uh, earth is Christ's throne in its perfected state. And so therefore this white stone ties us to Christ in much the same way as the new name ties us to our covenants with Christ. These are all symbols of that. And, and uh, those are the interpretations of Joseph Smith in modern revelation of what's going on here. Uh, con- the promises continuing, I will give power over the nations. I will give the morning star to those who who overcome. I will clothe them in white raiment. I will conf- who, he who overcomes, I will confess his name before my father. I won't blot his name from the book of life. I will make him a pillar in God's temple. Remember that from Jeremiah's theophany. That was Jeremiah's promise. He said, I'm not equal to the task of communicating, God, what you're saying to me now. Imagine what it is to hear God's voice. God doesn't say, Jeremiah, comma, I am telling you that you need to communicate these words to the Israelites. What Jeremiah experiences is the fullness of the presence of God filling his mind, filling his spirit. And as part of that, probably a very small part, is this message that somehow has to get translated from the pure wisdom, the pure intelligence that flows from God into the language of man. And Jeremiah doesn't feel equal to that task. That's the job of a prophet. God doesn't limit himself to man's languages. That's man's problem, not God's, right? And so that's Jeremiah's task. And he says, I'm not equal to this. And God says, I'll make you an iron pillar. So part of the work, of, part of what an iron pillar is, is someone who is capable of translating direct wisdom, direct intelligence from God and, and sharing it with other people. That's very fascinating. That's, that's one of the blessings that will flow it's, it's basically the gift of prophecy to make someone an iron pillar. And you wouldn't know that unless you had packed your bags and read Jeremiah chapter one. And then when you see this promise that God is going to make me an iron or going to make me a pillar in, the, uh, in God's temple, now I understand what that means. I'm going to get the gift of prophecy. I'm going to be able to translate pure wisdom, pure intelligence from God. And that means that God will speak to me. It, there's a number of blessings that are included in that, and all of these blessings are that way. Uh, he shall go no more out. I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God and my new name, 
These are all amazing blessings. And when he says him, something you need to understand about ancient languages, quite often the masculine includes the feminine. So they're not they're not specifically, and John specifically is not excluding women from this. It would have been understood to his audience that when he says, and this is true, uh, th- I know this is true in Portuguese, which was my mission language. When we said brothers, it actually means, it literally means brothers and sisters. So you can stand in front of a con- congregation and they're starting to say brothers and sisters now, but it's because the missionaries say it. You could actually get up in any Portuguese-speaking uh, congregation and say brothers, and everyone there would understand that it meant brothers and sisters. It sounds a little bit sexist for us with our gender-neutral language, and, uh, and th- but that's been an innovation in English of the last, I would say, 30 years. Um, so this is, not, this is not meant to exclude women specifically. So you listening, you sisters listening, uh, when he says... I shall give him, uh, this, this is specifically including you. You don't have to feel like you're not included in these blessings. You are. And that's just, a, that's just an artifact of the language and the translation. This translation can't, it can't convey that meaning to you. So anyway, if you've ever felt like you're excluded from the scriptures, please keep that in mind. These blessings are for you. I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God and my new name. And he will sit with me in my throne uh, even as I, those who, he who overcomes will sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sit with God on his throne. Those are just some of the blessings that are promised to those who overcome. So now we've gone up through uh, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And you've already received all these amazing revelations and promises. And uh, I've, I've left out a number of the admonitions that God gave to these churches. One that we, we commonly... Uh, read as if it were a universally applied lesson is, I stand at the door and knock. And he who comes to the door and answers the door uh, lets me in. I will sup with him and he with me. Now we think, oh, God is saying this to everyone. Well, yes, if we put ourselves in the position of this congregation that received this and we understand what they would have understood, then this lesson can apply to us if we, if we adapt it to ourselves. But it was originally intended for a specific congregation in Asia Minor in the first century AD. Isn't that fascinating? Um, that is right at the end of Revelation chapter 3, for example. And so that's, that's just one example of, the, of the, thing, the ways in which we might have taken this book out of context over the years. Um, so now we get into Revelation 4. And here is John's throne theophany. After this, I looked... So after he receives revelation for each of the seven churches, he tells them the ways in which they are to repent, and then he gives them their blessings if they do, and if they overcome, if they endure to the end. Then he looks. Behold, a door was opened in heaven. Revelation 4, chapter, uh, 4 verse 1. The first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, the throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, when you read this, this should, if you've packed your bags properly, this should, uh, you should be setting off all kinds of alarm bells, or not, you know, should be setting off all, si- all sorts of cross-references to different other throne theophanies in the Bible, and incidentally, also in the Book of Mormon, because Lehi was very much a, an Old Testament prophet in his tradition, and he had a throne theophany, and it was very similar. And uh, so did, uh, from the indications that I can see, so did the brother of Jared. So we have two fantastic examples of 
Book of Mormon prophets following in these same traditions. Lehi's theophany occurred, in fact, in Jerusalem. And at that time, had he remained, his, his testimony would likely have become part of our Old Testament because it's very much in line, well, not only for this reason, but it is very much in line with the other Old Testament prophets. Okay, so uh, immediately I was in the Spirit, a throne was set in heaven, one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in sight like unto an emerald, and round about the... Okay, so he's trying to describe looking at God on his throne, and all he can talk about are precious stones. It just means that, again, we're not meant to be able to convey the sense, the true glory of what he saw using words. He's getting as close as he can, and no words would be adequate. And here, and so we have to just imagine what he saw, and we can't imagine it. And that's the nature of being a prophet. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crown of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. So more sevens, right? The seven churches in Asia, the seven candlesticks, the seven spirits of God sent forth, the seven eyes, that's in the next chapter, uh, the seven servants or the seven angels of the churches, which are the seven stars. So we've, we've already had a number of sevens. And what this basically means is John is trying to convey to us the perfection of God's plan. So God's creation of the earth took place in seven days, and God, and John is saying, look, you were never meant to think that was the last seven. That seven was symbolic. Why do you think we have a Sabbath every week? Why do you think we keep the Sabbath day holy? It's because we have to remember that God's plan is, is the entire creation of the earth from beginning to end. That, that idea, when it fully hits you, will blow your mind. Now, Joseph Smith says in DNC 77, he says the seven seals we're about to read about. The seven seals are 7,000 years. So that gives you a little indication. Those seven periods, those seven creative periods that God used to create the world, the seven days, they're symbolic of the 7,000 years, or, you know, it may not be exactly 1,000 years, I, I believe. Uh, the se- they're the seven living periods or the seven mortal periods. So there were seven creative periods, and then there are seven mortal periods. And God will, the seventh will be dedicated entirely to God. He will rest from his labor of resisting Satan. Satan will be bound during that time. It's known as the millennium. Now, uh, that is a correlation that is not had in mainstream Christianity. The general mainstream Christian view, and, and there is a ton of controversy, so there isn't a consensus but you know, if there were a consensus, you might say that the general Christian view is that everything that is to follow in the book of Revelation talks about the time between the life of John and the second coming of Jesus. And it doesn't really talk about things that came before or after that period. And the Latter-day Saint view, because it was revealed by Joseph Smith, is this book is t- actually talking about the entire history of the world. And we, what he's saying is, that, and that allows us to get this correlation, which is the seven creative periods of the world match up with the seven mortal periods of this world. Now, you probably, if you've grown up LDS, you probably already have that deep in your understanding. This is part of the bags that you have packed without even knowing it. 
But this is actually an earth-shattering revelation by Joseph Smith. And it's very important, and it shapes so much of your understanding of the scriptures that you don't actually realize how much that it's put into place for you and how much more of an understanding you have of what's going on than somebody who didn't have that correlation. It's very important. So um, we haven't got into the seven seals yet, but when you do, you'll realize, wow, if I didn't know this, this, this book would be so much harder to understand. Okay, so John sees these 24 elders. He sees the throne of God. It's impossible to describe. And then he sees seven beasts. Okay, before, okay, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like into crystal. We talked about what that, that is. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. If you read Ezekiel chapter 1, that is also a way in which the beasts that carried the throne of God were described. They have eyes looking in every direction. And what I, what I understood from that is that no matter where they are, they're always seeing everything. And no matter which direction they're heading, they, they're, not, they're never heading in one direction. They're always heading exactly where they need to be. And they don't have to turn in order to be going a new direction. And even I, trying to, under, to describe it in an abstract sense, am not making sense. That's because language doesn't suffice. The first beast, now we're in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 7. The first beast was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third has a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Uh, th this is almost a one-to-one -one correspondence with the beasts that Ezekiel described. Joseph Smith also had uh, an interpretation of what these beasts mean in D&C 77, and they differ a little bit, so that's interesting. So the beasts are corresponding with Ezekiel's beasts, but then listen to this. In verse 8, the four beasts had each of them six wings. So now the six wings correspond to Isaiah chapter 6. So now we're, we're in two chapters. In one verse here, the prophet John has evoked images from Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. And he's done it in a single verse with just talking about these beasts with six wings. So basically what he's saying is uh, these, are the, these are the heavenly beings that surround God's throne. I want you to see, not only do I want you to see this vision in the context of an Old Testament vision, but I want you to see me in the context of an Old Testament prophet. And, and uh, maybe I phrased that wrong. It's not the will of John that you see this. God gave John this revelation particularly for this reason so that we would understand John is very much in the tradition of an Old Testament prophet. And listen to what they're saying. Uh, verse 8, They were full of eyes within, and they rest not night and day, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now, holy, holy, holy is something that you may or may not be familiar with. This is how, in Hebrew, that you... So this is one of the reasons why I think this was originally composed in he Hebrew and then translated into Greek. In Hebrew, this is how you say the holiest. Glory to God in the highest, for example, you wouldn't say glory to God in the highest. You would say glory, glory, glory. That would be how you would say it. So when what we have translated as glory to God in the highest is actually glory, glory, glory. There is no higher way to say glory. You say it once, oh yeah, glory. You say it twice, you're like, wow, a lot of glory to whoever you're talking about. But when you say it three times, then you cannot improve upon that. You have just said what you say three times is actually you, you mean it to the utmost, to the, from the bottom of the earth to the top of heaven. When you say glory three times, you mean glory to God in the highest. When you say holy three times, you say God is the holiest thing there ever was or ever could be. 
And that is exactly what the beings surrounding the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 were saying. So when you get that context, you realize, oh, Revelation isn't actually that hard to understand. John is actually just trying to put himself in the context of these Old Testament prophets and these beasts and these elders and the throne of God and the sea of glass, they mean the same things that they used to mean. And because I was because I grew up with all of these images filling my mind and being taught what they mean from the time I was a young child and going to synagogue every week and hearing it read over and over again, I get this immediately. So that's why Joseph Smith said that the book of Revelation was very clear to understand. And that's because God had likely packed Joseph Smith's bags by this point that when he read it, he thought, oh yeah, I know exactly what that means. This, this book is very clear to understand, Joseph Smith said. And uh, it can be, right? It doesn't have to be uh, as, as obscure as we often find it. So they're all in the attitude of praising God in chapter 4. Now as we go on to chapter 5, uh, John sees a book. Uh, he says, I saw on the right hand that of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, it's not a book the way we think of a book, a book with a spine and pages. It is a scroll. And when a scroll is rolled up and it's sealed, there is a place where the the roll comes around and the end of the page overlaps the roll and and there's an edge there. And if you want to keep it from unrolling, you put a wax seal on that edge and it seals the page to the earlier part of the page that it's rolled around on top of. I know you're all envisioning what I'm saying. So imagine a big long scroll, but instead of one seal, there are seven wax seals that are imprinted with the seal of God. So understand the different word meaning of the word seal here. The seal the seal in the hand of God is the thing that melts the wax and puts its imprint on the wax. But the seal on the scroll is the wax itself. Both of those things are seals, and and both of the the word seal is used in both of those senses here in the book of Revelation. So later on, an angel is sent to earth with the seal of God, and that's the ring or the signet or whatever it is, whatever piece of metal is used to imprint the wax. God sends that seal. He delegates that power to go to earth and seal the, the sons of God or the children of God in their foreheads. You remember that verse, the 144,000, I'm sure you remember. And that's, that's the actual metal seal. And these are the wax seals. But John isn't clear about that, so we have to make sure that we're understanding what's going on. So John sees this scroll. Now, this scroll is very, very important. It's basically the whole point of the whole book of Revelation is this scroll. And that's because, I'll just go ahead and break the, the suspense for you. It is the plan of God. This is the plan of salvation contained in, on this scroll. And God shows it to everyone, and they all know it's desirable. It's much like the tree of life in the vision of Lehi. Just looking on it, you know it's the most desirable of all things, okay? And you'll, and you'll see why I think that as we read. I'm going to read a lot from this, from this chapter because it's very important. I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So this is the introduction, but 
uh, it skipped over, like, that's the only verse we have, like, everybody's distressed because nobody can open this, this book. Now, if it was modern literature, we would have spent more time setting up the conflict, but really, this is the pain of the story, that nobody can open this scroll, and it hurts a lot. It hurts so much that John wept much, and he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us, but he spent a lot of time crying about it. He was so sad and so distressed that no one could open this. And that tells you that just looking on the scroll, you knew that it was so desirable you wanted to know what was in it. This scroll is the plan of God. As Joseph Smith says, it reveals the workings of God on the, in the, first, the, the first seal is the first thousand years, and the second seal is the second thousand years, or the second mortal period, as I've called it. And that means it's the, it's the mortal plan of salvation. It's the unfolding of events on the earth. So, one of the elders said unto me, now we're in verse 5 of Revelation 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's from uh, Genesis, I believe it's 49, by the way. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And that's from the book of Kings. The, this is Messiah, messianic language. So David, and it's also from Isaiah chapter 11 when there's a, there's a root of David and then the branch grows out and branch is put in capitals and it means that this Savior who will come from the house of David and take over the throne of David and save Israel and in the time of Jesus Christ, everybody thought, oh man, look back at the days of David and Solomon when Israel dis- determined its own destiny and Solomon conquered all the lands round about and they sent him tribute. We were rich, we could worship how we wanted and we were respected and we were free. And so the Messiah is, is going to sit on the throne of David. We've been promised that he would sit forever. And of his, of his lineage, there would be no end. And so we're waiting for this wonderful Messiah. That's the root of David. Okay, that's what this means. And that's what Isaiah promised in Isaiah chapter 11. So John is saying here, all of these things are fulfilled in one person, the, the Lion of Judah. And, he, and so, again, the, John hears this. This is something he's hearing Remember, there's a difference between what John hears and what he sees. Okay, Uh, so weep not. The, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So there's rejoicing because they've been weeping. We want to know what's in this book. Oh, yeah, you don't have to weep. There's one who is worthy. Okay, verse six, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. So he's looking at this lamb, and the way you slay a lamb, according to the law of Moses, is you cut its throat and you let it bleed out. It's, it's the most humane possible way to kill an animal before our modern technology. Uh, but And not that we always kill animals in humane ways, but we do have more humane ways now. But this was a very humane way to kill the, the beasts, and this was how they would sacrifice the animals in the kosher way, according to the law of Moses. And so as it had been slain means this lamb has its throat cut and it's bleeding. Its blood has been drained out of it and it's possibly, you know, a lot of blood around. This is, this is what he sees. So he hears that there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He hears that there is the root of David. And both of these are a person as well, a mighty king. And he looks and it's a slain lamb. It's a sacrificed animal, something they would put on the altar of the temple. Okay, the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So 
uh, now is when we have tied. So if you go back to read, and you don't have to do this, but I'll just explain it to you. In Zechariah chapter 4, he sees seven candlesticks. And then later on, he's given the interpretation that these seven candlesticks are the seven eyes which are, which are sent forth into all the earth. So John has both brought in that image, but he's expanded it because the, the correspondence isn't exact. And the reason for that is because he wants to take that image and he wants to turn it to his own use. He wants to take the, the associations that people have with the book of Zechariah and he wants them to put to you, put, he wants to put them to use to teach a new lesson. And so that's why he also adds these seven spirits and the seven eyes, and he doesn't have the candlesticks mean one thing, but he has them mean two different things. It's okay that they don't match up perfectly, is what I'm saying. The prophet John, the author of Revelation, is using this as a tool to teach an additional lesson. But the word seven, it always means the plan of God, the purposes of God, and the perfection of God. So whenever you hear the number seven, you can understand that John is tying something into the creation, and then by extension, he's tying it into the entire plan of salvation, and he's saying all of God's plans will come full circle. They will all unfold exactly as the creation did. He will have six periods of struggle, and then there will be one period of glorifying God. We, we do that every week, and God did it once when he created the world, and that's what the entire history of the world looks like. And so that's what these seven spirits mean. That's what everything means. So he's constantly trying to remind us of that fact. So the lamb is there. Everyone is looking at the lamb. And uh, in verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now, John is now taking us beyond the nation of Abraham. You remember that, uh, or the people, the descendants of Abraham, God originally promised Abraham that I will, through your seed, every nation will be blessed. I will make you a father of many nations. So it was never meant to be just the nation of Jews. The original promise was always that God's people would fill the earth and be part of every nation. And then later on, the covenant with Moses was, this nation will be, a, will be a nation of priests and a holy people. I will make you examples. But it was always meant to be temporary. And so now again, John is saying the time has come when we're not just the, the nation of Jews anymore, but we're the nation of the whole world, every nation. So the, the promise is no longer to Moses, but to Abraham, the older promise, that God is going to redeem us out of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation. So it's interesting because God first started with the whole world and then he limited it to Israel so that he could show an example, a light unto the Gentiles. Once the light shined, he opened up salvation to everyone again. Uh, so again, John is showing that this scroll is the, the plan of salvation. Behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That number doesn't necessarily mean exactly 100 million. What it means is, I can't possibly come up with the number. Uh, saying with a loud voice, and you may recognize a lot of this language, uh, for example, um, has redeemed us to God by thy blood. That's from the last uh, number in, the, in Handel's Messiah. 
uh, here again, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So that that's also from uh, the final the final number of Handel's Messiah. Worthy is the lamb is the name of it. But this entire chapter is about people rejoicing that someone could finally open this scroll. And the reason we don't quite get that message is we haven't spent that much time. There's only one verse where they talk about, oh, I'm so sad, and then we just move on. But we need to get that that verse was the important verse. Like, it was a real problem that nobody was worthy to open this. And then finally, the rejoicing that happened when somebody was found worthy because he died for us to open this scroll, then the rejoicing will never end. Every creature, verse 13 now, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. So the fact that these, these seven seals are going to be broken and opened is a cause for such rejoicing that that rejoicing will never end as long as this uh, person sitting on the throne and as long as the Lamb live, which is forever. So, Revelation chapter 6, now we, t- now we start opening the scrolls. Or, sorry, sorry, we start opening the seals. And Joseph Smith in 70, D&C 77, he said, these are each uh, the, the events of a thousand years of our mortal creation. Uh, and I won't actually go into the details of e- what each seal means, but I will say, so uh, the first four seals are, are horsemen that come out. And these horsemen are actually also from Zechariah. So Zechariah talked about a horseman coming out and being a messenger from God and, and delivering a particular judgment. Uh, that's in Zechariah chapter 1. So again, uh, John calling forth an image from the Old Testament and then adapting it to teach a new lesson. And each of these horsemen... Uh, Look, you could spend some time if you wanted to, if you were interested, you could say, all right, what does this first horseman mean? And how, if I look back at biblical history, the first thousand years of biblical history, how does that first horseman match up? I'm not going to do that because uh, Joseph Smith has already given the interpretation and basically we're not in that thousand years anymore. So matching up the, the meaning of this and the, the depiction of it might not be foremost on our list. But he talks about how uh, each thousand years or each seal has its different events that occur into it. Interestingly enough, he gets into the fifth seal and he's talking about martyrs. And this is the time, if you're paying attention, that, uh, that Jesus has died and now Christians are being killed. And they're, they're being put in, they're under the altar, the altar of the temple. right? That's what an altar means. They're hiding under the altar, which is where you go for sanctuary, and they can't find sanctuary. They're being slain by the world. And white robes were given, we're in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So in other words, uh, God says, I can't give you relief right away, but you have to wait. And so... When he opens the sixth seal, there's earthquake, the sun becomes black as sackcloth, the moon became as blood, the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind, 
and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth. Now that, incidentally, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low. I'll let you look up that particular reference, but this is a, this is a refer- another Old Testament reference here. It's, he's describing the great and terrible day of the Lord that occurs during the sixth seal. The kings of the earth, the great men, everyone goes and hides and says, who can stand, who can withstand the great and terrible day of the Lord? Now, this is a reference to, among other things, the prophet Joel. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So the heaven, the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. The stars of heaven fell into the earth. You remember in the book of Peter, we talked about the elements shall melt in fervent heat. Now, elements, stokeia, also means heavenly bodies or stars. So these, the elements melting in fervent heat and the stars falling to earth, the same, it's, it's basically a metaphor. It's, the stars obviously cannot fall to earth. Uh, but we do talk about falling stars. What are they? Meteors. He's not going to describe meteors. He, he doesn't have a separate word for stars and meteors. When people of that time period saw a meteorite, they thought it was a falling star, and that's what they called it. But is that what he's describing here? He's saying all the stars will fall to the earth. The heavens themselves will roll together as a scroll. So what these ancient prophets were describing, when they used this powerful metaphor that the elements will melt with with fervent heat, the stokeia will be changed, is that there is a reality behind the reality we know, and that all things that have been kept secret, this is a, this is a truth that is referred to in the Book of Mormon, that those things that have been kept secret shall be shouted from the rooftops. In my opinion, and it's not 100% explicit in the passage, so it is my interpretation, but it is that that is what this is describing. All things that have been kept secret shall be revealed. That's what this that's what this means when the when the heavens when the elements melt with fervent heat. Now some people say okay that's when uh, there's a nuclear war and the sand the silicone elements of the earth it's so hot that they melt and they become glass and that's how the earth becomes a sea of glass. I've heard all these interpretations. Sure. I mean if you think so that that's the way the great and terrible the Lord day of the Lord shakes out then what do I know about that day? But I actually think that a more uh, accurate representation of what's going on is that this is a metaphor, and it's it's basically saying there will come a time when everything that has been kept secret will be brought to light, especially secret evil, and all of the people who fought, as it as it describes in the Book of Mormon, no one will know what we're doing. All our works will be in the dark, and then. There will come a day when all these things are brought to light and shouted from the rooftops. That's what this is describing. So, uh, and, and so therefore everyone will run and say, who can stand in this terrible day? Because all our deeds are being revealed. And not only are, are our deeds being revealed to a human understanding, but all of us, no, none of us anymore can keep the knowledge, as Alma described, out of our heads that God actually is right all along. It will be, all the truth will be brought home to us in a way that we cannot deny that we knew what we were doing. Every, every wicked choice we've ever made, we knew it was wicked. We knew we shouldn't have done it. And then we tried to excuse it, and we knew we shouldn't have excused it. And so the things we've actually repented of and said, God, I knew I was wrong, those things will be forgotten in that day. But these people are running for the hills, and they're running to hide in the holes of the rocks because uh, they haven't repented. So that's what I think, is that sins begin to be inexcusable. We, 
the day of rationalization has ended. And that's what this means when the stars of heaven fall to the earth. I could be wrong. That's my interpretation. Now let's go on to chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Uh, for an interpretation of this, go to DNC 77. Holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor in any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now this is the metal seal, not the wax seal. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So now here's another kind of seal. First is the metal seal that imprints the image on the wax. Then there's the wax seal that stays on the paper. Then there's the seal that they're going to put in the forehead. And this is a seal that is the same sense of the word as the sealing power that is in the priesthood keys in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. That sealing power is something that makes something permanent. So when something is sealed, God has described to the prophets, you have the power to, what you will seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven. To make an ordinance, to make a blessing, to make the retraction of a blessing, to make those things permanent. That's what this angel is saying. There, is, there are judgments which have been pronounced on the earth. There are angels who are waiting to deliver those judgments, and there's one angel who's saying, wait, it's not yet time. The number, and okay, again, John hears something, and then he sees something. So remember, he first heard a voice behind him. He turned around, he saw the candlesticks. He first heard that it's the Lion of Judah, and it's the Root of David, and he turns around, and it's a slain lamb. Now he hears the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000, blah, blah, blah. He actually lists all 12 tribes. Interestingly enough, if you, if you look through which tribes are included here, Joseph gets a double portion. There's the tribe of Joseph, and there's the tribe of Manasseh, which is a, which is a son of Joseph. Uh, and Ephraim is left out, so Joseph ob obviously is Ephraim. So Joseph gets a double portion, which means somebody is left out. Guess who's left out? Dan. The tribe of Dan isn't mentioned here, so 12 tribes are mentioned, and Dan isn't one of them. And you remember earlier, one of the blessings to him that overcomes, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And Dan was known as the most idolatrous of all the 12 tribes. They were the northernmost tribe in their in the lands of their inheritance, and therefore they were bordering the Amorites, which were the wickedest of all of the, the Canaanites that they were supposed to wipe out and take out of the land, and they didn't do it. And so Dan was one of the wickedest tribes, probably the wickedest, and here, the prophet John just leaves him right out. In other words, blots his name out of the book of life. Dan doesn't get 12,000 of his tribe members sealed in their foreheads. Now, this isn't doctrine of the church, and uh, I'm sure there are people in the world today who have in their patriarchal blessings, you're in the tribe of Dan, and this doesn't mean that you don't get blessings. Uh, it does mean that it's the interpretation of the prophet John that he should be left out of this particular list. What that means, I don't know. This is my thinking that John was saying, uh, you know, because of the wickedness of the tribe of Dan, their names have been blotted out. Uh, now, that's there are other lists in the scriptures of the 12 tribes. And interestingly enough, because Joseph got a double portion, uh, there will be times when different, different sons of Jacob are left out. Sometimes Joseph is included once. 
and the names of the sons are listed. Sometimes Levi is left out because his tribe was a special tribe and they were the priests. And in this particular case, Dan is left out. So it doesn't have a, I don't think it has an eternal meaning, but I just think that's an interesting thing to think about, that Dan wasn't included. But in any case, the, the 144,000 are 12,000 from each tribe. And the modern interpretation of that, the, the Latter-day Saint interpretation is, these are, 12, these are 144,000 missionaries. Uh, Joseph Smith gave that interpretation, again, DNC 77. Uh, so John hears 144,000. He turns in verse 9, Revelation chapter 7, I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number. Now John has already given us the number of 100 million. So this is a multitude even greater than that. Uh, a multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So they're still praising God. Uh, incidentally, oh, I didn't, I didn't write this reference down, but there is another, where was it? Well, I'll leave that as an exercise to the reader. Uh, there's another Old Testament passage where there are 12 gates in Jerusalem, and it's in the New Jerusalem, 12 gates, the three on each side of the city, and they are for the, for the 12 tribes. So this is very much a, a, an evocation of that passage. And it might be Isaiah. Anyway, I hate, I hate it when I do that. But uh, so he's talking about these 12,000 sealed out of each tribe, but then he sees a great multitude that no one could number. And the angels are standing around the throne. The elders are around the throne. The four beasts are around the throne. Everybody is still totally rejoicing and unable to contain their joy because the lamb is able to open these seals. And John sees the people that are arrayed in white robes, this numberless multitude. And he says, who are these people? And basically one of the elders answers and says, these are all the people that are saved by Jesus Christ. They, they've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, I want to point out this verse because it's probably one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. They are they, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Now guess what? You and I have the opportunity to do this right now today. This could describe any number of people that you already know. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. The verse before that, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You and I can choose if we want to be part of this multitude of people wearing white, standing before the throne of God, worshiping him, praising him forever, simply by washing our, our garments white in the blood of the lamb and serving God day and night in his temple. Isn't that fascinating? You read this and you think, wow, wouldn't it be great to be one of those people in, in, the, in the temple of the heavens? But he didn't say that. He just said, these are the people that have washed their robes and they serve God in the temple. Wow, you and I can do that. We can go to the temple day and night. I mean, we don't have to go every day and night. But we can go and serve God, and then He will dwell among us. When He had opened, now we're in chapter eight. When He had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, about the space of half an hour. Now, interesting that He mentions a specific time period, and I have actually done this math in times past. 
if one day is a thousand years, then half an hour is 20 years and 10 months. Uh, and so I, I, I say that more out of tongue in cheek than anything, because I don't think it means anything, but silence for 20 years and 10 months after the opening of the seventh seal, which is the 7,000 years. It may be that the beginning of the seventh seal, there are 20 years and 10 months of peace. Who knows? Okay, the seven seals are now done. And then seven angels which stood before the throne of God, to them were given seven trumpets. So it's interesting because seven seals are, this is the scroll of God which contains the plan of salvation. As soon as they're all opened, seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. Now, as we'll see, as, se- as the seven trumpets are sounded, as soon as the seventh one is sounded, seven vials are given to one, angels, and then they're poured out upon the earth. The seven trumpets and the seven vials are judgments. Now, one of the ways to interpret this is the seven seals are 7,000 years. Then the seven trumpets are things which will happen during the 7,000 years or at the beginning of the millennium. Another way to interpret it is these are restatings of the seven seals. So the seven trumpets and the seven vials are ways of telling the same story that was told through the seven seals. In other words, it's a restatement of the entire plan of salvation. I, su- I suggest reading these next three chapters with using both interpretations and see which one uh, feels most at home to you. But basically, this is the meaning of the book of Revelation, is John is saying, here's how the plan of salvation will unfold. This is the history of the world that I'm putting before you. But it's the history of the world in a way that can be described by someone who cannot find words to do justice to what he's seen. And so therefore, uh, we're not meant to understand it completely. We're meant to recognize that John has, has had a transcendent experience that can't be fully conveyed. And in that sense, the pressure's off, right? We don't have to get 100% comprehension on this. Any part of comprehension that we get is going to be very helpful, and it's going to be spiritually beneficial to us. So read these trumpets. Each time a trumpet sounds, it's another judgment hitting the earth. Um There were voices, verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. There were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. Now, uh, this is Exodus language. These These are the plagues of Egypt hitting the earth, right? So again, another Old Testament context. Let's, so the trumpets keep sounding, plagues hit the earth. Uh, some of them are actual plagues and some of them are uh, curses, but they're, they're the plagues of Egypt. The, let's go to Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fall from heaven and into the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as of the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, without reading more, I just want to say, the first chapter of Joel talks about a similar curse. And there are, there's a description of locusts. There's a plague that comes upon the earth where these, they don't trouble the earth, but they, or they, they, they basically consume everything they see. And whatever is left by the locusts is concerned by canker worms and grubs and caterpillars and uh, they they devour the earth. These are and then in the next chapter, so Joel chapter one is that. In the next chapter, armies 
descend, and they're similar to the locusts. Now, you would have to have read the book of Joel many times for that to occur to you. Uh, Nevertheless, chapter 1 of Joel, locusts. Chapter 2 of Joel, armies. And the armies are similar to locusts descending on the tribe of Israel. Now, we we have a description of locusts that come out. And the locusts have breastplates, and they... They torment people only. And uh, verse 7, The shapes of the locusts were likened to horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. Their faces were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of mighty horses running into battle. So this sounds very much like an army. So the locusts have now become an army. So this is, this is imagery from the book of Joel, from chapters 1 and 2 of Joel. And that is a description of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the interesting thing about Joel is you don't know whether that army is a good army or an evil army. Are they, is it army sent by God to bring the people of Israel to a remembrance? Or is it an army sent by enemies of God's people to, to destroy them? We don't know which it is. And the same thing is going on here. We don't actually know. Are these locusts, uh, are they sent by God? Are they blessed by God? Or are they cursed? Are they evil people that are just providing a curse to the people of God? We don't know which it is. But they will be given power to torment the people of God for five months. So the six angel sounds, and then the four, then finally these four angels that have been holding back the curses on the earth are loosed. When the seventh when the seventh uh, trumpet sounds, now this is when we start getting into some modern day imagery. We're now in Revelation chapter ten. These angels that come from heaven are angels that were sp- spoken about in modern Revelation many times, and one of them is has been given the interpretation the angel of Mor- the angel Moroni. Uh, so. That We're not there yet, but uh, we'll get there in a bit. First of all, verse 1, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and rainbows on his head. His face was as it were the sun, his feet pillars of fire. He had in his hand a little book open. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. There's another seven for you. When the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Here is another kind of seal. He is now creating new things that are hidden. So the the whole point of the the elements melting in fervent heat, the, the stars falling to earth, is that hidden things will be revealed. And now we've gone back in time. This is why we don't take the book of Revelation chronologically, because now he's putting new things into hiding. He's taking the revelations from God, and he knows What's going to? He knows the entire history of the world. He, it's being revealed to him similarly. Uh, similar has been revealed to Enoch, as as has been revealed to Moses and other prophets. Uh, the the brother of Jared, they saw everything. So these seven thunders are that revelation to John. And then a voice from heaven says, "You you are not authorized to show everyone this, but you can write it down if you seal it up." So here's another meaning of the word seal, which is take this and now hide it. It becomes part of the mysteries of God. It goes into that great scroll. That great scroll, which all the seals of which have now already been opened. So we're going back in time. John is putting more mysteries. And that's why we all are looking at the scroll and we're thinking, if only one were worthy to open that scroll. 
haven't you ever thought, I would love to have the mysteries of God revealed? I would love to know the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, for example. And that is why he was weeping much at the idea that there was no one worthy to, re- to open the scroll, is because we want the will of God to be revealed. We want God to take control on the earth. We want, as, as Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We all pray for that. We pray for the kingdom of God to come. And when it comes, it will be revealed. That's the, they're one and the same thing. So this angel comes down, and he stands one foot on earth and one foot in the, in the sea and says, he, sw- he swears by him that liveth, forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth that the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Interesting, interesting verse. This is, this is made explicit, which is that which is implied throughout the Old and New Testaments, which is that God lives outside of time. Here it is, it is explicitly stated that time will come to an end. Now, what form existence will take when that happens, none of us can possibly imagine, because none of us can imagine where events don't come one after the other, where there is no sequence of events, where there is just simply no time. None none of us have enough context to fully understand that. This verse is revolutionary. Uh, This is the same idea as the stars falling from heaven and and the heavens being rolled up as a scroll, it, it means a profound change to reality. This is the same verse as that. It's the same idea. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So that now, and now uh, John is given a little book. Remember, we talked about that already in DNC 77. Here's where it happens. The voice which I heard from heaven spake to me again, said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel, and I said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. So he does. And then in verse 11, The angel said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is calling forth, interestingly enough, predictably enough, an image from the the book of Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is given a scroll, and this book is also a scroll. So it's the exact same thing happening. He's given a scroll, and he's told to eat it. And when he puts it in his mouth, it's sweet as honey. And then, uh, so verse 1 through 14 of Ezekiel chapter 3, the first part of the chapter, he eats the scroll, and it's sweet as honey. And then his, and then later on, his bitterness is within him. And the way I interpret that is, it's sweet because it, he knows that it contains the truth of the everlasting God, and it's a revelation from God. And so therefore, uh, he loves it. And, and nevertheless, it is the words of God to a wicked and rebellious people, and therefore it makes his belly bitter. It, it causes him sorrow and suffering because of the need for repentance and perhaps the, the judgments and the punishments will be, that will come upon the people because of his words. And so, therefore, it has two sides to it, this, this revelation, this mission that has been given to Ezekiel first and now to John. So John is saying, I am like Ezekiel. I am like Isaiah. I am like Jeremiah. I am like Daniel. I am like Zechariah. I am one of the Old Testament prophets. I have the same vision. I am also called to call a wicked and rebellious people to repentance, people who should know better. Okay, our final chapter, we're in Revelation chapter 11. 
There it was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. Now this is imagery from uh, not only... Now Ezekiel chapter 40 through 46 is all about measuring the temple. Uh, But also this is Zechariah chapter 2. He also, uh, an angel comes and measures the temple. And when he measures the temple, then he another angel comes out and says, let's put a wall around the temple. So this is understanding. This is protection. When you measure the temple, you're providing all of these things. And you're providing future uh, blessings. You're providing covenants. You will have this role in a future day in the temple. Anyway, that's what happened when the temple was measured in the Old Testament. And now we're measuring the temple again. It will. There will come a time in the book of Revelation when we do another measuring. We'll talk about that a couple of lessons from now. Uh, so there was given me a reed like unto a rod. The angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out. Measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. The holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Do the math. That's three and a half years. That is one half of seven years. So uh, that is a number which is also significant. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, he talks about a time and times and half a time. Now, if you remember, a period of time and a day are really the same word. So he's saying a day and days and half a day, which if days means two days, that's the minimum it could mean, then he's really talking about a period of three days or three and a half time periods. Now, again, we don't want to get into math, but what I'm saying is it's significant to the prophets that wrote this that they are basically talking about one half of seven days. They're talking about exactly half of the amount of time that God took to create the world. So they talk about sevens a lot, and now it, it seems they're talking about three and a half a lot. So the fact that they wrote 40 and two months here uh, basically, we're thinking about this as three and a half years. I will give power. This is These are the two witnesses that you may have heard about. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about them. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Do the math on that number of days. Uh, I will wait for you to do it. Hopefully, it won't take you very long. One guess on how long that is, three and a half years. These are the two olive trees, two candlesticks, standing before the God of the earth. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, devoureth their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now again, Old Testament imagery. Fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Where did fire proceed out of the mouth and devour enemies? You might remember Elijah standing before the priests of Baal, telling them, if you can have fire come from heaven and light your altar, then 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 Baal is God, and if I can have fire come from heaven and light my altar, then Jehovah is God. So let's have a contest. And when he did it, Then fire came out of heaven and destroyed the priests of Baal. Uh, Also, the vision of Daniel, when fire comes out of his throne and devours his enemies. So these are, those are the two Old Testament imageries there. They have power to shut heaven. Elijah and Elisha, both called uh, famine upon the earth, that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. And Moses had power to turn waters to blood. So the great miracle workers of the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, these 
what what John is saying is, I am like one of the prophesying prophets of the Old Testament, and these two candlesticks, as they're called, these two olive branches, will be like Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. They'll be like the great miracle workers of the Old Testament. The days will come. This is one of the most powerful testimonies that prophesying has not ended, right? Because John is saying these things are all for a future day. Why would, why would anyone think that the days of prophecy has ended? We'll, we'll talk about that next, the second half of Revelation, because the, the final thing that John says is, don't add anything to the book of Revelation. The interesting part of that is, an interesting side note to that is, Revelation was, uh, no one thinks that Revelation was the last thing written in our modern New Testament. And therefore, obviously, people added plenty of stuff after Revelation was written, and John obviously didn't mean don't ever write anything from God again, just don't add to my book of Revelation. Uh, it's, it's so obvious that it hardly should even have to be said. In fact, there's a similar pronouncement in the book of Deuteronomy that has never given anyone any trouble. Uh, Moses says, don't add anything to my words. People added plenty of words, but they didn't add to the book of Deuteronomy. And so, uh, but this right here is evidence that God did not intend. If you accept the book of Revelation as from God, then you know God did not intend for revelations from God to ever end, because here they are. Here is John saying they will continue. There will be prophets like Old Testament prophets in the future. And I am a prophet today, after people said that prophecy has ended, here I am today, another one. I am in the I am in the tradition of Old Testament prophets, and there will come others after me. And uh, so powerful testimony for modern revelation, for the need for ongoing prophets and apostles, for a restoration of all things. Now, you may remember that these two prophets lie in the streets, and everyone, everyone who's evil, they rejoice over their death. And then they're called up into heaven, the seventh trumpet sounds, and a great earthquake shakes the earth, and then all the people who were... Uh, wicked and rejoicing that they died, they now look around and say, oh, God obviously has given his, they obviously had the approval of God. They were servants of God. What are we doing? Now, here's something interesting. You you might want to go back and read this, but the seven trumpets are all punishments that are dealt out upon the earth. And it says here that nobody, in spite of all of the suffering, nobody's repenting. But now when uh, these two men give their lives, and then are called up into heaven, then, uh, then the people actually look, and a tenth part of the city falls, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So now people actually are willing to look at their, uh, their conduct and say, maybe, maybe God has something for me. It doesn't necessarily say uh, they've 100% repented, but there's evidence now that, that hearts will change. Now, a mainstream interpretation of this chapter, I think, is in order, and then we'll talk about the Latter-day Saint interpretation. Remember that these two men are called the two candlesticks of God. And candlesticks was an earlier, uh, an earlier image used to represent churches. And so this, the one mainstream interpretation is that these two men are actually two congregations of churches or, or two, uh, hard to say, right? It's the, it's the church of God giving itself, being willing to suffer and die the way that Jesus died, that will actually change the hearts of the people of earth. So the, the judgments 
the judgments of God, the destructions that surround the second coming of Jesus aren't actually changing hearts. And so then God asks his people to do what he did and die for others. And when they do, God resurrects them and then everyone is converted. This goes in line with what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verse 31 through 34, when he says, there will come a day when people will accept me and know me because I will forgive their sins. So it's not because he destroys them. It's because he forgives their sins that people are willing to change. A similar idea is expressed in Ezekiel chapter 36, the latter half of that chapter. So you could read those to understand that. Uh, so that that interpretation is not without its basis, and it's probably uh, a great way to think of it. And you may have heard that Bruce R. McConkie has a different interpretation. He says, These are followers of that humble man, Joseph Smith, through whom the Lord of heaven restored the fullness of his everlasting gospel in this final dispensation of grace. No doubt they will be members of the Council of the Twelve or of the First Presidency of the Church. So the, his interpretation was that uh, one day in the future, there will be two members of the two apostles called to go to Jerusalem and and basically bear witness for three and a half years and then be killed and then be resurrected in three and a half days. So interesting, interesting differences in interpretation. If you ever see that uh, the two apostles have been called that have been continuously testifying in Jerusalem for any length of time, then uh, go back in time, do the math, and then if they are there for three and a half years, you'll know that's the day that that's coming true. So those are two interpretations of who these these witnesses are. And I don't see any reason why both things couldn't be true. Uh, I don't see any reason why the the congregations, the the body of Christ as as Christians are called, couldn't be called upon to give to bear witness before the other people of the earth and even lay down our lives to to show that the same thing that Christ showed, which is to show the wickedness of anything other than a Christian form of government and then be resurrected than than the day of the first resurrection. So as we've seen, this is very much a work about warning the people of these seven churches that great judgments are coming and that we all shouldn't expect things to continue how they are now forever. There, In fact, there will come a time when time does, doesn't exist anymore. So a revelation, an apocalypse, is similar to what is meant by these stars falling from heaven and the heavens being rolled together like a scroll. What it means is there will come a time when God will reveal all things. All mysteries will be brought to light. I'm going to end this lesson by talking about something I promised you earlier, the hidden manna. So we're back in Revelation chapter 11, and uh, the hidden manna was one of the the promises in chapters 2 and 3 to these congregations, to him that overcome will I give the hidden manna. Now manna, as you remember, was found on the, on the ground every morning during the Exodus. But hidden manna was some of the manna that was stored. You remember if they tried to store manna for any length of time, it would go immediately bad. But some of it was stored and put in the Ark of the Covenant and saved forever. And it was uh, preserved with the tablets, with the rod that Moses had, and it was put inside the Ark of the Covenant and kept in the temple. It was a sacred relic. And so this manna, once it was in the Ark of the Covenant, and then once the temple was built, and it was put into the Holy of Holies, no one ever saw it again. This hidden manna could only be accessed by, by arriving at the throne of God and having God give you all things. So the the 
the tablets signified knowledge of God's law. The rod symbolized God's power, and the manna symbolized God's blessings. So I will give to him of the hidden manna means, to him that overcome I will give the hidden manna, means that I will give the, the power of God, the power of miracles, the, the knowledge of God, and all the blessings of God, and all the blessings of God's plan. You will have arrived at the Holy of Holies. You will be around the, surrounding the throne of God. And so hidden manna it contains all of these things, right? And you wouldn't know that unless you'd read in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy where that hidden manna got placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So, How does that tie in with chapter 11? The final verse, the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Same thing as the ark of the covenant. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, the temple of God was opened in heaven. Paul talked about the true tabernacle. So the temple is a symbol of our journey back to God. But he also said, Jesus Christ is actually the high priest of the true tabernacle. In other words, he's walking us through the holy place, from the altar, through the holy place, through the veil, into the holy of holies. That's not symbolic. He's actually taking us on the real journey, and that's the true tabernacle. And that's what John is talking about here. He's saying the temple of God was opened in heaven, the true tabernacle. And look, there's no veil. We can see straight into the holy of holies. And there was seen in his temple, the ark of his testament, Only the high priest could ever see that, and here we are looking at it. We're seeing the throne of God. All of us are having our own throne theophany here. Now, we're still in the time of tribulations, but basically God is revealing his willingness to give to each of us the hidden manna, which contains, which which journey to get the hidden manna, it contains every blessing that God has for us. And therefore, God is promising here, This is a blessing that is open to all. There is seen in heaven God's ark of his testament, and all we have to do is walk this journey with Jesus Christ, with the Lamb who is worthy to open all of these scrolls, and we will receive it. Now, there's much more in the book of Revelation, and and this sort of leaves us on a cliffhanger. What do we have to do to receive it? Will the people of God actually get there? Uh, We are on a cliffhanger. But we have this promise that if we we will overcome, and it's military language, and Jesus Christ was promised as a military Messiah, but then what did he do? He changed the expectations. He flipped them on his head. And instead of conquering in a military way, he allowed himself to be slain. But as, uh, as we read in the, as we studied in the second chapter of Colossians, that was his, his walk from his judgment to Calvary, was his victory procession. This was when Jesus was triumphant in battle, was when he was carrying his cross, because in that moment he revealed what everyone else was, that there was only one way this earth could be governed, that people could be governed, and that is through the righteousness of Christ. Anything else becomes a beast. Any other form of government, people will turn themselves into selfish beings, and that is where the beasts arise. And therefore, All things must come to light, all evil must be revealed, and there must be an apocalypse, a revelation, and the temple of God will be shown, and all of us can overcome in the same way which Christ overcame, which is by revealing the evil in ourselves and repenting of it and bringing it out into the open before God and having him shine his holy light on it and heal it. And will we do that? Uh, What will come if we do? And what are the blessings that God has when we do? 
All of these things we'll discuss next time. But for now, remember that there is a true temple in heaven. God is leading us there and waiting for us there is the hidden manna that we'll be led there by the by the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ, who is slain and who is alive. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.